You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. On behalf of the U.S. Institute of Peace, it is a pleasure to welcome you all here today for this important and timely conversation on Islam, peace, and women's rights. A conversation with U.S. Special Envoy Rina Amiri and prominent Islamic scholars and leaders. My name is Kathleen Keenest, and I direct the gender policy and strategy work of the Institute. U.S. Institute of Peace's mission and commitment is to demonstrate that Peace is practical and possible, even in the most challenging of circumstances. We know, though, that sustainable peace, that is really more than the end of conflict, is not possible without the protection of women's rights and girls and their participation in peacebuilding efforts. We also know that engaging religious actors in peacebuilding efforts is not only important, but critical for sustainable peace. Religious ideas, institutions, practices, and leaders play an intrinsic role in both peace and conflict dynamics. On the occasion of Women's History Month, we are pleased to welcome Ahmed Mohammed Ahmed Al-Tayyib, who is the current Grand Imam of Al-Hazar, the Grand Imam of Azhar. He recently wrote a publication on women's rights in Islam, clarifying no violence against women is allowed in Islam, and that women can be judges, politically participate to the fullest level of even becoming the president of a country, all of which is enabled through education for girls and women. He is among the growing voices of Muslim scholars speaking about the importance of women's rights to participate in society in equitable and meaningful ways. We are pleased to share with you a one minute video of the Grand Imam Thank you very much. It is now my pleasure to turn this event over to the capable hands of my colleague, Pawasha Cocker, who is the Interim Director for Religion and Inclusive Societies at USIP, a program that has over 30 years of experience and knowledge and a key part of our peacebuilding work. Cocker brings her own terrific background, including working at the Asia Foundation and uh, the Civil Society Unit in the UN Development Program. We welcome you, uh, Pawasha, and uh, the very interesting panel to ensue here. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kathleen. We really appreciate that. And welcome to this USIP event on Islam, Peace, and women's rights in Afghanistan. Uh, we would like to thank Dr. Ibrahim Alaimi, the chairman of the board of directors for the Doha International Center for Interfaith Dialogue, 
for giving us this opportunity to hold the panel live in one space on the sidelines of the Doha Forum, where world leaders had the opportunity to dialogue on topics about transforming the world for a new post-COVID era, where in almost every panel, they touched upon the closing of world schools in Afghanistan or the Ukraine conflict. It was really amazing to see how much uh, solidarity there was with Afghanistan uh, in the forum. Today on this panel, we have the opportunity to discuss the significance of coordinating with Muslim leaders and scholars. We know that real positive peace cannot happen without justice towards women. And we know that women are key peace builders in society, which we look forward to discussing more about today. Studies have shown that when women are part of the peace process, that peace process is 35% more likely to be successful. Studies have also shown that when women are a significant part of the workforce, the country's GDP also increases up to 32%. Women's participation in building peace and sustaining peace, contributing to the growth of the economy, increasing health, preventing disease, reducing corruption, all have been studied and proven. Women participating in society from education to decision-making in equitable ways contributes to peace. In fact, higher women's participation is an indicator of peace. And in countries with lower women's participation, they have higher levels of violent conflict. So with the Taliban so far reversing their decision to allow high school girls their basic right to education in public schools, this affects peace, this affects growth, this affects health, and this affects the prosperity of Afghanistan and is more likely to give rise to conflict. Today on the sidelines of the Doha Forum, we're pleased to be able to gather an esteemed panel of scholars and Muslim women leaders here. I'm pleased to introduce our panelists. We have Fatima Gilani here next to me, the Afghan, an Afghan political leader and Islamic scholar. She was a member of the Afghan government's senior negotiation team during the Afghan peace process after 2018, and she was one of our only four out of, out of all of them, only one of the four women who participated in talks with the Taliban in Doha uh, in 2020. Now, next to her, we have Special Envoy Rina Amiri. She is the U.S. Special Envoy for Afghan Women, Girls, and Human Rights. Ms. Amiri brings over two decades of political expertise, advising and working with governments in various conflict settings in West and the Horn of Africa, Middle East, Central and South Asia and Europe. Her area of focus are peace and security with a specialization in inclusion and mediation processes. We will also be joined later on with Her Excellency Sheikha Alira Ahmed bin Saif Athani, who is the permanent representative of the state of Qatar to the United Nations, and Ambassador Deborah Lyon, the UN Secretary General Special Representative for Afghanistan and the head of UNAM. So I'd first like to turn to you, respected Ms. Gilani. We just heard the statement of one of the most learned scholars in Islam, one of the highest authorities in Egypt, stating clearly the importance of women's participation in society. And we also know that women's participation leads to sustainable peace. So you're an Islamic scholar, and you've negotiated with the Taliban for a long time now. So where have there been progress on engaging these issues? Where have you seen the progress 
And what does this mean as a way forward for engaging with the Taliban on women's rights issues? <clears throat> it's uh, for me, like any other Afghan woman or any Muslim woman, it is not uh, just uh, some, a disappointing uh, moment, it is a shocking moment. Um, it is uh, very uh, good to, to start with a voice from Al Assad. I remember very well when uh, the School of Girls uh, closed many years ago, more than 20 years ago. Um, I turned to Al Assad and I had um, a word from Sheikh Tantawi, uh, then the, um, the, the head of the um, Al Assad um, University and Mosque. Um, to say something about it. And my question was that if this is a right thing, uh, then why uh, other Muslim countries are not stopped? You know, women going to school, working, or being in politics, or, or anything. If it is, um, they should be stopped. And if it is right what they are doing, then why the whole Muslim world is silent? And why you? Um, the, um, the figure that we all respect in Al-Azhar, why are you silent? At that time, it was era of, um, of facts. So meters and meters of facts came, and uh, I was on my way to BBC World Service, and I read some of the important messages uh, that he had sent to me. And this message was totally in line that we heard now. Peace is something that we start our conversation with. This is the first word that we say when we face each other every morning. When we face each other every morning, the first thing we say is, Salamu Alaikum, peace be upon you. But have we forgotten what we are saying? Are we a parrot just to repeat something which we don't mean it? I mean it. And I expect every single person who utters this word should mean it. Women being in politics, women being the learned, women being leaders is nothing new for the Muslim women. Today, majority of hadiths of the Prophet, peace be upon him, we learned from Aisha. The first leader of a political or military after the death of the Prophet, peace be upon him, was Aisha. We put aside, regardless that we agree on this political side of it, we agree or disagree, but the fact is that person who has uh, transmitted all these hadiths to us from our um, religious prophet, the Prophet, Peace be upon him. He, she was a warrior. She was in the Jamal War. So she was a political leader as well as a military leader. Do you think that she didn't know what was right and what was wrong when she was doing it? A person whom we make our laws and regulations on the word that she has given to us. Wasn't Khadija a person that our Prophet, peace be upon him, was working for her? Was it 
the biggest decisions made by him was taken from consulted and negotiated with his wife before uh, the last congregation that he had, the Prophet, peace be upon him, had told the world, the Muslim world, something that was um, conveyed to him by his wife. Have we forgotten that some of the wars was financed by the tax that his wife was a cobbler, was a shoemaker during the war, made money and gave it uh, for, for the uh, political and military causes. We forgot all this. I will refuse, and I want every woman in Afghanistan to refuse to stop my religious obligations being performed. I simply refuse that traditions, wrong traditions, in my country take the place of my religion. I refuse that my religion cannot conquer bad, I mean, services that has been in the, in the hand of people who were against women that continue. I refuse to be conquered by traditions and I will feel that my religion failed in front of tradition, I refuse. I repeat again, education is not just my right. This is my duty. If it wasn't important, it wouldn't have been the first order of God. The first order of God shows the importance of that act, which is read. As simple as that. Read. You Muslim, read. You Muslim, learn the art of writing. There is no buts and ifs in this. This is simply yes or no. Is it or isn't it? I say it is because I saw it in my holy book, Quran. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, in terms of when you were interacting with the Taliban, these were the kinds of messages that you were giving them. How did they receive these kinds of messages? Quite frankly, we never even had this question of school being closed or open. This was taken for granted. It, the question was that co-education or not co-education, the quality of education that we were talking about, but that, that a girl would go to school, it was taken for granted. It was never an issue. This is a shocking moment, not just for me, not just for women. This is a shocking moment for whomever believes that the first order of God was there. So this was never ever discussed. That it, I mean, it was not an issue to discuss because it was taken for granted that we will go to school. What about on other issues like women's right to work, women's political participation? What are some of the things that you've seen in terms of your conversations from a religious perspective with the Taliban? How, uh, you know, what things have you been able to discuss with them and, and how they interacted or responded to that? Um, first of all, the formal negotiation would never, never did go to a point that 
we will talk the do's and don'ts, which usually comes in a constitution. It never did go that far. But what happened that usually when they were talking uh, was not so much working or not working, but the environment of the work has to be a respectable um, and Islamic environment. And or um, if we go to university, what should we wear and all that, that kind of thing. It never came to that, that women should be allowed or not allowed to work. Work is a noble thing. If the wife of the Prophet, peace be upon him, was a cobbler and she was making shoes, then working is fine. If the wife of the Prophet was a merchant, a renowned merchant, that men were working for him, this is taken for granted that this is fine. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That's very clear. So, Special Envoy uh, Amiri, let me turn to you. Um, you've really done a lot of outreach to the Muslim world on these issues. It's made, you've made a priority for the work to do this. Uh, you've traveled to Jeddah, you've spoken to the OIC, you've traveled to Indonesia, you've, uh, traveled, you've talked to the Qatari government here, you've also just recently come back from Turkey. What are you hoping to engage, uh, achieve through these engagements? Thank you very much. I haven't traveled to Indonesia yet. It's on my agenda. But you know, I will note to you that it's, I've been in my position now for two months. And I started out by saying that my priority is not to speak on behalf of Afghan women, not to set the agenda for them, but to, but to turn to them and ask them what, what they wanted my priority to be. And one of the thing, one of the points that I heard from many Afghan women, including Dr. Gelani, is make sure that you um, uh, that you don't let our religion be weaponized against us. They have taken away our rights. They cannot take our religion and use it against us. Um, and that's what the, the Taliban are doing. Um, they said, you need to bring our sisters, our, our Muslim sisters, uh, to mobilize uh, as a force around us. When, when we get hurt by our religion, every woman in the Islamic world gets hurt. When the Taliban say that taking away, stripping women uh, of their rights is based on Sharia, it is not only hurting us, it is hurting Islam all over the world. And one of your responsibilities and one of your priorities is to do this outreach uh, uh, towards the uh, Muslim majority countries. You are a US representative. You have to use whatever leverage there is to support the rights of Afghan women. But on a social level, on a cultural level, uh, uh, on a religious level, that the, that responsibility lays uh, with also the, the Islamic world to stand up and say this is not right. This is uh, the, the Islam is a religion, and many have said this. And when I went to uh, you know when I was uh, when I see there was such pride in saying you know Islam was the first religion that granted rights to women. When other religions, uh, it wasn't even on the table. It was the, the prophet that one of uh, his first acts, the holy prophet, that outlawed infanticide of, of, uh, of girls, which was prevalent. And the fact that you know that there was such progressivism, and that was the foundation of Islam. Now, for for those that use politics 
to uh, to strip women's rights away and use religion is uh, to mask their politics is, is just it's a crime on so many levels. But it's stripping people of the faith that uh, that they have such great pride in. And, and I've taken that message. I've taken and I've taken that message to say that to the Islamic world that you know. It is the responsibility of the Islamic world to take the key, to take the issue up with the Taliban and to say, look at us. We are Islamic and look at what we are doing to, you know, and every one of these countries, I should know, has its own challenges and problems. But they, um, there's a spectrum and no one falls on the spectrum of the Taliban stand on, on uh, the issue on taking away women's rights and, uh, and, and a way that they made them prisoners in their own house and using religion as, as that basis. And when I've taken that message to OIC, it was a grace and uh, they have made the commitment to continue engaging on this issue. I went to the International Fed Academy and said, if you, can't, if you have a delegation to Afghanistan, include women in your leadership, engage women, and engage religious women, engage civil society, make sure that the Taliban sit with the religious community and see that women are also Islamic scholars. Uh, I took this message uh, to, you know, and I've had great engagements in Qatar and have received a great deal of support. And hopefully the ambassador um, will, will be able to, to speak to that when she comes. Uh, and, then, and I just came back from Turkey where, and the message I also think is a very pragmatic message. You know, the issue of women's rights is not something that, it's, it's not an island on its, on its, itself. It's integral to uh, stabilizing Afghanistan. And if women are stripped of their, the right to education, the right to work, families will leave. It will uh, cause a massive migration, which will first touch the borders, um, the bordering countries, and it will have an impact on, on many countries in the region that are Muslim-majority countries. Um, it will create uh, and the more it will create instability, and that instability will once again become a uh, a breeding ground for greater radicalism. So women's rights is not just something that can be put aside and then we can talk to the Taliban about politics and about you know humanitarian first. It's integral. And as, as you have said, and I keep on repeating this to everyone, that it's you can't put, put women's rights in the political situation and the humanitarian situation into separate silos. You have, you have to address all of these. We have to do many different difficult things at the same time. And the lead, there is a leadership role that we must in this regard. It's vital. So if I can just add to that, you know, we have stellar examples of Muslim women public service around the world. We have women ambassadors, like inshallah, we will have women ambassador Qatar joining us just UAE, here she is. Thank you for joining us. I'm so glad that you're here. How are you? We have heads of state as well, such as the Singapore president, Madam Ali I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about how you see their role and their messages, and where is the entry point? Um, you know, what is the significance of their messages and their roles in conveying that to uh, in solidarity with Afghanistan, but also to the people? 
I think it's really important to, uh, to reflect the diversity and the diversity of, of the uh, one of the um, Muslim world, Muslim majority countries, as well as places where Islam is practiced. And just the consistency of the messaging, the consistency in terms of the, the regardless of where, uh, which part of the world you're looking at, um, where Islam is placed in that world, whether it's the, it's the majority or minority religion, um, nonetheless, nothing, there's nothing that aligns with the, with the view that, uh, that the Taliban are, are putting forth. I, I, you know, and some people would say, well, it's, it's Islam uh, according to the culture of Afghanistan. They say, no, that has nothing to do. This is Taliban culture we're talking about. It's not, uh, it's not the way that Islam was ever practiced in Afghanistan. Uh, and the, the, it's, it's a radicalized Taliban culture that is being projected as Islam in Afghanistan. Uh, and I, the, we need the Muslim world and all of us diversely to make that case, to echo that message. Uh, and for the Taliban to hear, to hear that, you know, to the West, they constantly say, well, you don't understand our religion, you don't understand our culture. And it's really important for, you know, the West sometimes has a harder time uh, 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 responding to that. This is where the Muslim world needs to take, take that, that issue up with them. And there's a lot that we need to do. There's a call to action right now. If this is not a call to action, what the Taliban are doing, uh, then I don't know what we're waiting for. And that call to action is every country um, in the Muslim world should be saying no. This not in our name, not in our faith. Um, and Muslim women leaders, you know, we see uh, there are so many wonderful messages from women foreign ministers from all of the West, the Western world, women civil society actors. We need that even more from the Muslim world. We need women leaders, women civil society to come together as a coalition. If Afghan women's rights are, are stripped away, it will be a precedent for radicals to do that in other societies. Thank you so much for your time. Let me now turn to your excellency, Ambassador Afghani. Um, special envoy, Amiri just said she had engaged, yes. She had engaged with your respective government. How is your government planning to engage on this issue? Thank you so much again for the opportunity to, to be together with you, Mia. Of course, uh, um, I mean, it's well known for everyone. Islam has played an important role in the last couple of months in terms of trying to ease the suffering of brothers and sisters in Afghanistan since, since, since the situation occurred uh, last uh, summer. Mm -hmm. um, there are many dimensions for the situation. It might be humanitarian dimension, rice dimension, economic dimension. Um, I know that, um, of course, now we are more focused on how to deal with the human rights dimension of the situation in Afghanistan. We recently, I'm sure we spoke earlier about it, we've all uh, recently uh, dealt with the unfortunate uh, decision by, by the gifted government in Afghanistan today, the Taliban, to suspend uh, the acts uh, the, uh, for education for girls mm -hmm. in the time being. Afghanistan uh, has been very uh, vocal about this, this um, an awful decision, unlawful decision. Uh, we've clearly said that this is unacceptable. 
Um, this is an un-Islamic decision, has nothing to do with Islam, has nothing to do with the teaching of Islam. Um, I mean, Qatar is an example for, for a country that women are flourishing when it comes to education, right to education, right to development, right to work. Uh, we set an example, of course, uh, uh, in the wider region, the wider region, also women enjoy, you know, you know, their, their rights fully, and especially when it comes to education. Um, and it's a basic right, even in Islam. I mean, I mean I, I'm sure we don't have, have the time today, but the Quran has many verses that discusses the, 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 the centrality of education for both men and women. Um, so I think that's for us is a basic, uh, the baseline for our conversations with the Taliban. Um, I had the pleasure yesterday to to join, uh, to accompany the foreign minister and many meetings. And of course, this issue came up in many meetings, especially with the, with the uh, with UN agencies as well. I had a very good conversation with the executive director of UNICEF, Captain uh, Russell. Um, you know, my foreign minister at that meeting was very firm. He said, you know, that's for us when it came to education, it's a must, and we will definitely uh, raise the bar. Conversations with the Taliban and the upcoming meetings that Qatar will be facilitating and convening here in Dubai. But again, I think going back to the idea of Russell, we need to do it. We need to do more, as was in the um, The OIC was really an important role. Um, women in the Arab world and the Muslim world should be. And I think we need to really invest more time doing that. So basically, uh, we're working closely with the, with Turkey uh, to issue a joint statement. Of course, I'm sure you're aware the Security Council issued a joint statement uh, two days ago. Strong, very firm, very you know, to the point when it comes to, to, uh, to this unlawful decision by the Taliban. We are planning to do something similar. The idea is to start building up a process uh, where we bring together Muslim countries uh, and, and, and come up with a joint uh, statement, and then we, you know, engage with the Taliban based on the statement. Um, and of course, work about at the OIC level, at the ministerial level, and then the Senate level. Um, I know there is a sense of urgency that we need to do it now. We have to. And I think this is what we plan to do, is to focus on, on, on raising the bar in our conversation with them immediately, and this is something the foreign minister had stressed yesterday. He plans to visit Kabul soon, um, and th th that will be one of the key key uh, discussion points that he will raise during that visit. And we will take it from there. I think what we need now, again, what Rayan said, it's it's our responsibility. It's our responsibility as Muslim countries to 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 raise the bar and to. Uh, Towards the bottom, right now, in our conversations with the Thank you so much. I have one more question. Um, I heard also that your government is planning to support education. Yeah, absolutely. And that is something that is a priority. We were setting up an education center, we were working on education, girls' education as well. Can you speak a little bit more to the vision, the plans that you, the government, have in terms of education in Afghanistan? Absolutely. So, yes, uh, plans are in place. Uh, we have uh, started the conversation for the Qatar Council of Development, 
and also our educational institutions, including the Institution Education Forum, which is chaired by the So basically, there is a lot of interest to invest to invest in education. So we are working at different levels, bilaterally and multilaterally for staff as well. So I mean, we want we want to use our knowledge. I think it's important to, to use every country that has knowledge, like us, like Turkey, like Indonesia, like Pakistan. We need to use our knowledge as well to make sure, even in our humanitarian assistance, we need to prioritize girls' education. And this is basically what we are doing now through the partnership with development and for the work of education. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to hear concrete plans. Would you like to move closer? Yes. Welcome, Ambassador Lyons. Thank you so much for joining us. It's wonderful to be here. First of all, it's wonderful to be here for the company and for the subject. And it's wonderful to be here because I finally found the place. And it's magnificent. I had a beautiful tour of Doha. Everyone must come to Thank you so much. Um, so my question to you, Ambassador Lyons, is that next week there's a charge meeting in China. This week or this week mm -hmm. already? Okay, I got the, the timing even sooner. And there's a role for the international community to play for regional organizations. I wonder if you could speak to that, but specifically to the role of the UN as a convening power that will bring all of this together. What What's your what, idea for that and, and vision for that? And how do you think Muslim countries fit into that mm -hmm. um, in terms of engaging on women's rights in Afghanistan? Okay, well, let me just start off with what you were saying about this week in China, really important. I mean, in addition to the all-important humanitarian pledging conference that is happening on the 31st, which is hosted, co-hosted by, I think, if I get right, the UK, Germany, and Qatar. <laughs> I knew I would forget Qatar. And the UN. And, uh, and uh, it's, it's, uh, it's online, though, so of course it's kind of universal around the world. Uh, that will be a very important day on the 31st. But equally, on the 30th in China, the border country foreign ministers will be meeting on the 30th in China, along with the Russian foreign minister, for the third meeting of this group, which formed last fall, very important, all of the neighboring countries, border countries, foreign minister, and now Russia is now part of that group. They'll be meeting on the 30th, and then on the 31st, it will be joined, I believe, by Qatar, and as well by Indonesia. And I'm told that uh, also there will be a, Tal a Taliban delegation, de facto authority delegation, going to meet with them. That set of meetings, in addition to, I believe, possibly a troika, which just to remind everyone, is uh, Russia, China, and US, and as well the extended troika, Pakistan, and I'm not sure if others may join that grouping, but at least those four, will also be meeting during those two days. So keep your eyes on the pledging conference and keep your eyes on those two days in China, because the messages that will be coming out of those two days in terms of the concerns, the support, the issues that uh, the various countries will be identifying in their statements, I think will be incredibly important for all of us to hear, particularly in light of the recent decision on girls' education. Right. Uh, because, of course, these are border countries that are very concerned 
about the stability in Afghanistan, as they should be. And uh, also, in many cases, a number of very important Muslim countries would also want to see reflected the appropriate uh, recognition of how magnificent Islam is as a, as a religion of knowledge, of wisdom, of understanding, and uh, that that is reflected in so many of these important decisions, and perhaps most importantly, in the area of human rights and knowledge, which uh, the Quran speaks so well about. So I think we've got very important meetings, uh, very important few days ahead of us. So what is the what is the role of the different countries? All right, let's begin with uh, the neighboring countries, as I have just said. We have heard many times, and uh, my good friend Fatima would reflect on this as well. We have heard from the neighborhood, from the region, that no matter what happens with the international donors of the NATO countries that have been in Afghanistan these last many years, the neighborhood stays. They continue their intense relationship with Afghanistan as neighbors and frankly, next to family, as we all know, neighbors are very important. So I, I would say that the regional countries have a huge role to play here. And I think what we are all expecting is that these neighboring countries will stand up and engage even more in supporting the Afghan people to move forward in a peaceful and stable way. Um, that's why these meetings coming up are so important, and that's why we as UNAMA on the ground in Afghanistan day after day, um, we are working very closely with the regional country ambassadors who are, of course, still there, and uh, we meet with them regularly on all of these various issues. And so I'm, uh, I'm particularly pleased to see the regional countries engage even more. I'm very impressed with the leadership that's come from Qatar and from other countries. We're seeing the UAE very involved, of course, through the presidency of the UN Security Council, and they have been very active this past month as we have gone through a number of hearings on Afghanistan, and particularly the UNAMA mandate renewal. Uh, Turkey as well, of course, and the work that it's doing along with Qatar on trying to work through a solution to the all-important airport. We're learning that every country needs a strong banking sector, and they need a good international airport. These are critical infrastructures. So I, I think it's really impressive to see how a number of the regional countries have moved in to try to, to, try to support those important elements. And we're working very closely with them. Uh, and then let me go to um, the donors, the international, uh, uh, I call them nearby countries, but, but most particularly the donors. I think the donors, um, and keep in mind that many of the regional countries are also considered to be donors, <laughs> but many others are obviously actively donors, both in terms of financial contributions, but also in terms of materials, health products, et cetera, that have been sent, and also working uh, with uh, Afghanistan and scholarship programs in so many other areas. Um, but in terms of the donors, I think it's a, overall a very interesting time because we're going to go into the humanitarian conference that is a non-conditioned support. So humanitarian cannot be conditioned. What happens at that pledging conference on the 31st has nothing to do with We'll give you money if you do this or if you do that. But then the question becomes, no one wants Afghanistan to remain as a humanitarian case year after year, winter after winter. So we have to move very quickly after the 31st on the humanitarian funding, which I hope will be substantial. We have to move very quickly to a deep discussion about basic human needs. 
and how we provide that additional funding that needs to be there to support the Afghan people so that they can help themselves. Let's not find ourselves next winter giving food to a desperate farmer's family. Let's now, in April, after Ramadan maybe, but let's soon give that farmer the seeds that he or she needs to plant in the ground so that they can produce the food, the, the wheat, the flour for the village around them. Uh, there are many, many aspects to basic human needs that has to be deeply considered. I think that's going to be a tough conversation now because some of the decisions, most particularly the one related to girls' education, how can you ask politicians anywhere in the world to provide funding from their taxpayers to support education when in fact not all of your population is getting access to education? Very challenging. So I think we've got a tough period ahead of us to work through many of these issues with the Taliban de facto authorities, with our donors, and Unanimous role is to make somehow all of this work. Because what is the bottom line? The bottom line is very simple. We do not leave the Afghan people behind. And we most certainly do not leave Afghan young girls wanting an education behind. Thanks so much, Ambassador. And we saw on social media some of the most heartbreaking images of the girls crying at the doors of the gates of their schools. They were so disappointed in not being able to go. And also, can I just add the incredible picture of the father consoling his daughter? Exactly. Exactly. So with, with that in mind, in terms of what's happening in Afghanistan, if you're on the ground day to day and you hear those voices on the ground, you're also on the ground interacting with the de facto authority there and you have the donors, what type of convened spaces do you oversee? What, what some of the, can you give us some interesting insight into how that happens? So maybe I was a little late in running here tonight because I just had a convenient space. Um, I was just with all of the ambassadors here this afternoon who are who are based now in Doha until hopefully one day we see them return to Kabul. Uh, so I was meeting with all of the ambassadors who are here representing about 20, 25 countries, talking about uh, how how challenging the environment is now, but how we have to work our way through that, how we have to make our way through that. And we actually developed a list of about uh, 15 pieces of work that need to be done to move us forward. As soon as I go back to Afghanistan, I will be meeting with the regional ambassadors on the ground, as I said earlier. We meet with them on a weekly basis, on a regular basis, to talk about the different issues that the country might be facing, how we're working together, how we're resolving some of the issues on banking and so forth. So we have a regular meeting with all of the regional ambassadors in, in, in person. I don't allow online. If we're all in Kabul, we come and meet together face to face. But then as well, we have on a weekly basis an online meeting with all of the other ambassadors uh, who are based uh, either in the capitals or here in Doha. We also uh, organize a number of meetings. For instance, there's a meeting coming up with uh, all of the special representatives or special envoys. That's actually being uh, organized by the Europeans. That will happen the first week of April. So we'll have everybody together for that. We uh, have a weekly meeting with all of the major donors that our development and humanitarian people uh, sit in on now. So many things are done, of course, online, but we bring all of those people together, the World Bank, the Asia Development Bank, and others, we bring them together along with the donors to talk again about how we move forward from humanitarian to the all-important development. Uh, and I'm hoping that we will have a very serious retreat 
in the next couple of months to work through how we move forward um, on the kind of pathway or roadmap that would be important for um, dealing with these issues that have come up recently with regard to education, with regard to inclusivity, with regard to counter narcotics, there's so many free passage, fair passage, all of that, uh, with the donors. And also, I think, convening as well with the Taliban uh, de facto authority on how they then respond to these. Let me also say that it's not just a matter of convening people outside of Afghanistan, for us, it's even more important to convene with Afghans. And so we do a lot with uh, the women's groups. We do a lot with women business owners who are still very active. We're doing a lot with the business sector overall. We are also working with the U.S. and the Central Bank in Afghanistan on trying to address the many issues that the banking sector uh, are facing. We can be in meetings with the Afghan Bankers Association, of course, with media, with media associations. Uh, so, yes, uh, I think that's our most important role is bringing to people together. But, but again, I go back to one objective, the objective of continuing to work through these issues with the Afghan people. And right now, that means also working with the Tobacco authorities. Thank you so much, Ambassador Lyon, in terms of clarifying that, you know, it is the people inside of Afghanistan, those voices that you bring forward in a lot of these meetings, including them in these conversations. Well, I just will add to that again. We almost remember this phrase, domestic legitimacy. Right? <laughs> it is important, what, what, whoever the government is, whoever the administration is, we need first and foremost legitimacy from your own people first. And then that helps with international legitimacy, yeah. but first, that. Um, would you like to yes, yes, I wanted to bring one more question. Um, you know, I, I am really heartened that we have fantastic women's leadership that has uh, been consistently speaking, speaking uh, uh, in support of Afghan women's rights. One great ally is here, well before the, the issue of uh, that's you know, the really devastating decision of the Taliban uh, rescinding their commitment. Another uh, incredible ally is the Foreign Minister of Indonesia, uh, Foreign Minister Retno. She very much wanted to be here, could not, but has uh, sent a message that I'd like us to, to listen to. Thank you so much. Colleagues, distinguished participants, greetings from Jakarta, Indonesia. I'm very proud to speak today as the first female foreign minister from a country with the world's largest Muslim population. Indonesia is a living proof that Islam and women empowerment can walk hand in hand. And this is something I would like to share with the rest of the world, including with our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. After all, Indonesia and Afghanistan share similarities. Just like Afghanistan, Indonesia is also a very heterogeneous country. In Indonesia, we strive for unity, but we also embrace diversity, democracy, tolerance, and respect for human rights help us to use our diversity as a source of strength to build our country upon. Of course, we are not here to lecture anybody that is not the tradition of Indonesia. But we are fully committed to supporting Afghan-owned, 
Afghan-led pathway towards peace, stability, and prosperity. But there is one issue where Indonesia can contribute, that is women's empowerment. We firmly believe Afghan women can be powerful agents of changes and will drive progress toward a new Afghanistan. The Taliban has promised to respect women's rights and we want to help so that this promise can be delivered. We stand ready to provide scholarship for Afghan women, explore potential collaboration to empower Afghan women, and facilitate dialogue including with the Afghan ulamas on women's rights and their potential contribution to the societies. Colleagues, Afghan women are indispensable assets for the present and future of their country. Without their involvement, there can be no lasting peace in Afghanistan. I'm hopeful this event may better shape perspective regarding interlinkages between Islam, women, and peace. I thank you very much. All right, so that was a wonderful message from the Foreign Minister of Indonesia expressing how important it is to have uh, women's empowerment in Afghanistan and how it peaceful, prosperous society. We have a question from the audience. Uh, right now we're, we're getting questions from the audience. One of them is that with every passing day, the Taliban introduced additional restrictions on women and girls. Women and girls. Is there a red line that has been communicated to the Taliban? What will the international community's response be if the Taliban continue with their current uh, introduction of state of affairs? This is the question. It's just in general. So I wonder if maybe for the red line question, um, John, would you like to start us off with the red lines communicated? I think you're asking what should be the red lines. I don't know if it was communicated or not, but in my opinion, uh, for me, the red line is when um, traditions, uh, wrong traditions, uh, is confused with Islam and it is implemented on, on women, men or women uh, in Afghanistan or any other Muslim country. This has always been something for me was uh, really the red line. And if you have your tradition, say this is a tradition and don't put the name of Islam on it because my religion is not like that. This is a religion of peace. This is a religion of knowledge. This is a religion which welcomes and it is openly says that we don't want to impose anything on people. They have to accept it themselves. So this is for me, this is the line. Fundamental verse from So the second part of the question is what's the international community's response? And are, will there be any kind of response? So let me turn uh, to Ambassador. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think we're seeing a different tone of responses uh, after, after the latest decision, the latest uh, decision by the Taliban to suspend domestic education programs. So you see the tone has changed. I mean, I, I, I don't know if you read between the lines in our statement. We were very harsh. We were very clear that this is something that the 
will not accept, mm -hmm. we will not tolerate, mm -hmm. we will deal with it, mm -hmm. and we will work on a reversal of such a decision. So, and I think that this tone will continue, we'll go into that in the same direction. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and, and this is what we will do from now on. Mm -hmm. I've seen this yesterday, and his Excellency, I I know for sure we will not tolerate it. Why? Because we were a country that knows Islam better than as well. We know Islam very well. We are conservative. We consider ourselves conservative as well. But and we know that we follow the real teachings of Islam. And the real teachings of Islam, as my sister also said, this is this is something that is unusual to say. Uh, there is a, a different categories, different age groups allowed to go to schools or whatever. This is something unusual, unheard of in this language. So I think from now on, I think this is the tone you will hear from the official level, mm -hmm. from member states and, and member states from within the OIC and the mm -hmm. But again, we need to do more. I think we need to just uh, try to, to, to organize ourselves in a way to have results, to see results, and to see how we can reverse the decisions or similar decisions in the future. I want to add something to that here because I, what I want to clarify to those that think that, you know, I'll tell you that there has been just uh, a profound um, you know, shock. Maybe many people say, well, why are you shocked? It's the Taliban. Yeah. But we have had conversations with the Taliban. For months, we have talked about each one of these details in terms of logistics. Taliban usually do not say that you know give us a concrete yes. Um, on this one, they they did, and and they also said that uh, this is an Islamic principle. So they they took away the Islamic arguments away from themselves, which is the reason that we actually had some level. Uh, we certainly didn't. We thought there would be problems. But no one expected them to just completely uh, renege on their commitment. But I just want to note that this is just not posturing on the part of the international community, the US and the international community. We say that unacceptable. There are consequences. There are things that the Taliban want. And we are at a, a, an inflection point. This is an inflection point. The Taliban reneging on girls' education it, 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 it could really uh, be a, a, that turning point where the international community takes a very solid uh, step back from some, you know, there will be engagement because engagement is necessary. The Taliban is the reality on the ground, but they, they want uh, a number of steps that would uh, enable them to be seen as a more legitimate actor, to be able to, to get uh, some support uh, in terms of capacity uh, and otherwise. And all of that, they have a decision to make, but beyond our, um, our engagement, our support, they need to look at and send, you know, the carrots and their sticks are inside the country, much more than the outside. They will lose the, the, the trust of the people, whatever trust remains. They will lose any level of confidence with the population that has been traumatized, um, but they have said, we are willing to work with you, but we need our basic and fundamental rights. If they remain on that with the population, they will lose that window for the population to work with them, for this piece that they claim that they are, they are very, that they have brought to Afghanistan, 
Um, and it's a, it'll be a real squandered opportunity, and that's what they should bear in mind much more than the role of the international community. So I guess here I, I want to make a distinction between red lines of the Afghan, the Afghan people themselves, and mm -hmm. the women in Afghanistan communities. Mm -hmm. That these are our red lines. This is what we want, you know, mm -hmm. and what the red lines of the international community has. That's why I first heard about Vietnam because I was saying, what are the red lines that the Afghan women have communicated inside of Afghanistan in terms of this? These are events. I remember, you know, just even a couple of years ago, there was this huge project called Our Red Lines. This is what women are demanding in terms of our rights inside of Afghanistan. And so we have both, like you were saying, the internal pressure and the internal red lines, and then the external red lines of the international. So thank you for, for distinguishing that. But you can I turn to a master lines? I, I think what I would just add to, to what has already been said is that, um, you know, um, I would rather talk about what are the obstacles, be they policy, be they philosophical, be they practical, and how do we work through those obstacles. Um, but I think if you want to talk about red lines, Pretty quickly, education right. would have to be <laughs> right up there. Um, and I think that, you know, we have said this many times and we'll continue to say it. Men's rights are not negotiable. Women's rights are not negotiable. These are not, the rights of, of a citizen are not negotiated away. Um, and also that, that applies to, again, coming back to domestic legitimacy, that also applies to ethnic rights, minority rights. And so all of this has everything to do with representative government, with people's voices being heard, being able to see themselves in their governments, whatever ethnicity they might be, whatever gender they might be, that they can see that the governance that is there to guide their people reflects them. This is all about stability. This is all about the country being able to move forward. And so I would just uh, highlight very quickly, again, because I like to talk about possibility and potential. I'm very happy to get tough on red lines when we have to. But all you have to do is look at the research now, which is so self-evident. So 174 countries were obsessed by a large group of university researchers from around the world, 174 countries. And they were trying to identify what is the key indicator for stability in a country. And what they concluded was, it was not the prosperity of their economy. It is not even your ethno-cultural profile. And surprise, surprise, it is not even the form of government that you might have. The single greatest indicator of the stability of a country was how that country in 174 cases treated and engaged women in their society. Having women be fully able to contribute to their society brings about greater stability. And we all know that ethnic as well and minority representation in forms of government also brings about stability, which is why the regional countries in particular have spoken out so much about inclusivity because they understand that if you don't have it, you undermine your stability and that could cause an impact not just for Afghanistan, but for others. So, you know, we have these conversations with the de facto authorities. 
It's going to take more discussing. It's going to take bringing the Afghan women in, most certainly into the room with us, which is what the Afghan women we've been meeting with regularly are now saying. I look forward to those discussions. Um, I think we've hit a very difficult spot in the road with this decision, which I hope is a temporary decision on girls' education. We have to now work with everyone to make our way to a better place. Thank you so much, um, so we're at the end of our, our time now, our panel. I think we've all had our data. Yeah, <laughs> thank you for raising it. So, uh, but I wanted to turn to each one of you to make, uh, to make a final statement. Uh, I know that some of you have uh, calls to action that you'd like to communicate, and we heard also the importance of engaging Muslim well. So I was wondering if you would like to make a final statement. Uh, um, <clears throat> really, for me, the final statement is that, uh, as uh, Deborah said, I hope it's a temporary thing. And I hope that very soon our girls will go to school as well as our boys, really. Thank you. And I want to go with that line as well, that if there's a technical setback, let's work on this. And there's been too much time wasted. Girls need to go back in school. Boys need to go back in school. We need to work towards no, uh, getting to some semblance of normality in Afghanistan, that, that is absolutely key. That is what will really bring about uh, an end to the conflict in Afghanistan. And I would just make an appeal for everyone who's listening, please let your governments know, particularly those whose governments are going to be in China, let your governments know, speak up, tweet about this, that they, that they have to support Afghan women um, and, uh, and rights, just fundamental rights for, uh, for both men and women in Afghanistan. Um, and women, I would just note, they are the entry point for inclusivity. If you bring women in, there is yes. going to be broader inclusivity, and that is the linchpin for, for uh, peace in Afghanistan. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I completely agree with what with, with my sisters. I think it's they've received the response. They've, they've got the message that this is not acceptable. Mm -hmm. And it's an unacceptable that I'm that including those who are engaging with them on a daily basis and casting first. So I think what we need to do now, again, hopefully it's temporary and they will go back to their senses. Um, and we need to focus now on how to prioritize girls' education and our engagement mm -hmm. with them, our humanitarian engagement to them. But this has to happen. Um, well, I would just you know add to the course here, um, but also uh, point out that Afghan women represent all women. Yes. And um, access to education is a universal right. Um, Afghan young women deserve to have all those educational opportunities opened up to them so they can contribute to their country. I would, my message to people would be, please, you know, spend a little time if you need to being shocked, spend a little time being disappointed, spend a little time being dismayed, maybe shed a few tears as a young girl who's on her way to school and has turned back, but, but we all need to come together as we have tonight and most certainly we need to let the various governments of the world know uh, that they need to stand up on this, not just for Afghan women, but for women all over the world on this issue, because this is about all of us. 
And this is about all of them as responsible governments, and most particularly the group who gather in China on Thursday, uh, Wednesday or Thursday, I think it is, really must demonstrate that, um, that uh, Afghan women will be supported, as will all Afghans. And at the pledging conference, I do hope that donors will equally uh, commit to a huge humanitarian support. And then we will move on from there. Thank you so much, Ambassador Lance. That was a wonderful way to end this. Um, I just wanted to include to thank you all for being on this panel, for taking us through how important education, nurse education is not only a right, it is a duty. Um, that the centrality of education is so important in building peace in, in, in our countries and around the world. That it's not just looking at one lens on the political lens, pressure, or the religious lens, but it's religious, economic, and political is really important as leverage on this issue. Uh, and that we all need to take a step to engage our governments. No matter what stage we're in, no matter what level we're in, that we can all do something by meeting them. So thank you so much for bringing us to the end of this. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye so much. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Mm-hmm.